He says we have to learn to get over, or have to learn to get by on four things. Shelter, food, clothing, and a bath. He believes that there will soon be declared a martial law with rationing of food, and then the government will later dictate where you can spend your money. Where are we? Let's say for the sake of the sermon today, let's say that what he shares is, is true. Now, was, this is just sermon notes, so they didn't write the whole sermon, so I don't have the whole sermon of what he was sharing. But let's say for the sake of, of today that what he's sharing is true and very well could be. The question then is, how does a person get through the time of the end or any other major crisis? How can we get through? Because it seems to be like what the, the uh, title says. It's scary. How are we going to get through this? Maybe you add to this what you read about other places, you know, FEMA has set up concentration camps all over the United States. They've got plastic caskets ready for all the people they're going to kill, you know, and just goes on and on and on and on. It sounds pretty scary. How they're going to take our kids away from us and we won't be able to see them and they're going to brainwash the children. And how can we get through that? Well, we're going to do two things. We're going to start the direction on seeing how the Old Testament deals with getting through a major crisis. And then, I'm not going to be here next week. I'll be in Hesperia. We've got a young couple from Lincoln. They just had a baby. I married them uh, almost 10 years ago. They had their first baby, and I'm going to have their baby dedication next week in Hesperia. And uh, then we have Jim McDonald coming the next weekend for a Christmas program here. So the weekend before Christmas, then we're going to look at what the New Testament says, how to deal with the battle, how to deal with the crisis that goes on. So I hope that you, you uh, come and, and hear all of this. So how do we get through? How do we get through a major crisis? In the email, his advice was that you should be thinking as a family of a plan on how you will survive. But he doesn't give any practice or practical suggestions on how to do that. Just get together with your family and figure out a plan. Well, if your family's like not my family, the hard part is getting them all together and trying to sit down and figure a plan. So maybe we ought to take a look at a plan that the Bible has in the Old Testament. And if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we're going to start. 2 Kings chapter 4 is just kind of the context. Uh, things were not going great in, in, with God's people. Uh, in chapter 4 it tells us that there is a great famine that was taking place. Like in those days when a famine hits, that was their livelihood. So it's like an economic collapse, like kind of what we're going through in the world today. And uh, everything is very stressful. People are starving, uh, the need of food, the lack of work, and uh, all the problems are taking place. We want to go Second Kings. If you don't know where that is, it's right after First Kings. So help you. Second Kings chapter four. And we want to start with verse 1. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know 
that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. This woman's got problems. From this one verse, we can draw a bunch of various conclusions. The woman was married to a man who was a part of the school of prophets where Elisha was the head of that school. And in order to belong to the school of prophets, this man had to demonstrate and show that he had a great faith and a great commitment to God. She even reminded Elisha that, uh, to remember that her husband was a great respecter of the Lord. So we could almost include in that that relying on his commitment to the Lord, she might have been a little shaky in her faith. She might have, uh, like some of us, been faltering a little bit. And she needed help. And so she desired to fall back on her husband's faith for help. We sometimes do that, you know. From the context, it tells us that her husband dies. We don't know how or what from, but it's probably a sudden death. He probably wasn't an old man. Um, being a part of the school of prophets, uh, he was probably uh, young, middle-aged, but for some reason or other, he died. And back in those days, that was her livelihood that died. Women did not carry jobs. They didn't work. And so when a husband dies, then it falls upon the firstborn male child to take over the responsibility of the entire family and to supply the needs, especially for his mother, if there is no family member that is to fall upon a, a brother, if there's no son who falls on a brother, if it isn't, she's out in the cold. She's not going to get any work. And there's already a famine that's taking place. So he dies. And he supplied the needs. But there's one big problem that happened. Her husband evidently borrowed some money before he died. Because there's a creditor that's coming to take her sons. That loan couldn't be paid back. And so now there's a huge economic crisis. And with this famine going on, it was not uncommon at all for people to go default on their loans. Doesn't it kind of sound like what's going on today? So she was concerned. According to Leviticus, a person in debt and without the means of repayment could be forced into bondage as a servant or a slave until the year of Jubilee, which comes around every 49 years. So it could be a long time that her kids probably could grow up into slavery and uh, would be really hard on her. At that time, all deaths are forgiven then at the end of the 49 years of the year of the Jubilee, and then they could go back and they were free to live again. But this man couldn't pay his debt. He dies. And according to the Levitical law, the lender who lent them the money had a right to come and to take all the valuable possessions within the home. In other words, foreclosure takes place. And, uh, and if that's not bad enough with this famine that's going on, but then he has the right to be able to take the sons and make them to be his slaves until the year of Jubilee comes around. So it's a major crisis for this woman. And she doesn't know what to do. 
the widow calls for help from Elisha. And Elisha comes and he asks her a question. 2 Kings 4 and verse 2. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Evidently, the, the creditor came and took away everything that was worth anything within the home. She has nothing there, nothing to sell. Here is name. probably took the furniture. There was nothing, nothing left to her name, gone. All she had was her son, sons, and all she had was this little itty-bitty vial of oil. Probably wasn't worth enough for him to take, and so he left it to her. I mean, there wasn't even any flour, it doesn't sound like, or anything else. It was just a little bit of oil, and that was it. No food, no money, a famine that keeps her from getting food from others because they're struggling as well, and she's about to lose her sons. How long could she ever think of living in such conditions? Probably not very long. And I'm sure she's been working, worrying day and night before she worked up enough courage to be able to seek help from Elisha. It would be a constant worry. Probably didn't sleep at nights, like some of us, worrying about our finances and our homes and what we're going to do. When Elisha came, did he have to preach to her about the terrible conditions that were in the country? That would just be adding more gasoline to the fire that's already there. Did he have to preach to her about the doom and gloom she's about to face if she doesn't pay back this loan? Did he say to her, you better sit down with your sons and figure out a plan as to how you're going to deal with this? No. Let's see what he tells her. Verses 3 and 4. Then Elisha said to her, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it, that's that little itty bitty vial, into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. <clears throat> it almost seems a little strange. It would be easier for her to say, Elisha, you flipped out. You have gone crazy. You need to go down to the Loma Linda Behavioral Science section and check yourself in. It just seems strange. But she and her boys are to go to all the neighbors and borrow large, empty vessels. Did he tell her how many? Just says, borrow as many as you can. She had to be the one to figure out how many vessels she wants to bring back to her house. Second, she's supposed to bring those empty vessels, those jars to her house. She doesn't leave them outside or take them to the church. She's supposed to bring the vessels home to her house of poverty. Third, she and her sons are supposed to go into the house and to close the doors of the house. And then fourth, she is to take that little itty bitty Bible and start pouring it into the huge stone vessels, which the vessels back in those days, big clay pots, about 25 to 30 gallons is what they would hold. Big, huge things. Many a times they would put water 
in them so they would have enough water, whatever they needed to sustain life if they were running low. So here are those big, huge vessels and this little itty-bitty vial of oil. And then fifth, she's supposed to keep pouring the oil out of her itty-bitty vial into all those jars. And it doesn't say some of the jars, but all the jars. So let's see what happens. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So she went from him and shut the door behind her, and her sons brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. She did what she was instructed to do. She began pouring oil into each empty vessel, and the oil kept coming out of that little itty-bitty vial until the first vessel was full. The boys had to carry it off to the side. She kept pouring into the second vessel. It was full. They carried it off. Third, fourth, how many? We don't know how many were there. It was whatever she and her boys collected. There was no set number. She kept pouring it out. When the last one was filled to the top, the little vial was empty and it quit. What does this mean? And how do we apply it to our homes today? Because we're all in an economic meltdown. Many of us, our homes are on the line. Let me tell you that every one of us is one step closer to being a homeless person than we were six months ago. It could happen to any of us just like that. The itty-bitty vial represents our faith. We are all given a measure of faith according, according to Romans 12, verse 3. Don't tell me that you don't have any faith. You've got faith. God has already given to you a measure. How big, how small that measure is, we don't know. But you've got something there. We are to build on that faith by collecting more vessels to be filled. We determine the number of the vessels from our needs. God doesn't determine it. it. It is our determination. The more that we have, the more the needs are, the more that we collect, the more it will be filled until it's full. The, the less amount that we have means the less faith that we'll get. I mean, God wants to give it to us and give it to us more abundantly than anything else. He's ready to fill. He can fill up and keep filling every day until Jesus comes if we continually determine that we need that faith and we can't live without it. You can't afford to go to the world to purchase a vessel. You have to go to those you know and trust, that you, your neighbors, your friends, whom you've been around, they trust you, you trust them. And they're going to work together to help in supplying those vessels of faith that are needed. So that means we need to go to our church friends. 
to our church, anyone who will understand the necessity of increasing our faith, that's who we're to go to. We're to be studying and praying together, seeking each other for encouragement. We need encouragement. We don't need someone to say, well, you better go sit down and figure out what you're going to do. We need to have encouragement together. We're all in the same boat. We're to bring the vessels of faith back to our homes, to our families, continuing to study, to pray, and to seek for encouragement for each one of our family members within our homes. The oil, according to Zechariah chapter 4, what does oil represent in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. God is willing to pour out the Holy Spirit and pour it out upon you more abundantly than you could ever dream of. But you have to be, you have to realize your necessity of the Holy Spirit before it's going to come. You have to humble yourself and to say, I'm an empty vessel. I have nothing, but I need the power of God to enter into my life. If there is a time we need the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, it's right now, today, to get through our world crisis. Remember what Zechariah said in chapter 4. He says, not by might nor by power, but by what? My Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The power of the Holy Spirit is far greater than what we can do by our own means and our own might and our own power. Don't think that you're going to get through the crisis by your abilities alone. You'll fall flat on your face. If there's any time that we need the power of God, it's right now. And when we go in our homes, we're to close our doors. Why would I close the door? Let me tell you what this is. We're not to allow anything outside of the home to distract us. We are to block out the influences of the world that's around us. We are to seek things that build our faith in God, not in things of the world that destroys our faith in God. We are not to dwell on the messages of doom and gloom that many people bring to this world. Let me tell you where this doom and gloom comes from. It comes from the devil. To get your mind off of the faith of God. It is Jesus and he only is going to get us through. And our focus has to be upon him. When we look anywhere else in the world, we will fall off the narrow way. And fall to our destruction. So we are to seek. The things that build our faith in God, not destroy it. Remember, we're trying to increase our faith, seek the power of the Holy Spirit for help, and we don't need other things that distract us from achieving that goal. Let me read to you what it says in the Review and Herald, dated clear back on November the 19th, 1908. I won't ask you if you remember reading that first hand. I quote, when we come to him in faith, he, that's Jesus Christ, takes our names on his lips and presents them to his Father, saying, 
I have graven them upon the palms of my hands. I know them by name. Now listen to this. And then the command, that's by faith. Then the command goes forth to the angels to protect them. Wow. To protect them in the day of fierce trial, he will say, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. What are the chambers in which they are to hide, she says? They are the protection of Christ and his holy angels. Don't you think God knows the crisis we're all going through right now? Don't you think he, he understands what's happening in the entire world? Don't you think he knows it's just about time for the second coming of Jesus? And so he wants his people to cry out to him by faith, not to be influenced by the world. They have been increasing their faith. They've been going out and collecting the, the vessels. They've been praying for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is starting to pour out on God's people. They're keeping their minds pure and set upon him. And as it's being filled, the holy angels are there and will protect us. That sounds pretty good to me. The protection from heaven is promised to us. Do I need to be afraid? Well, one of the things that we're going to look at is the Sabbath before Christmas is that perfect love does what? Cast out fear. We're going to see that from the New Testament. On that day. So we are coming to a point where we have to live daily by our faith in the one who promises that he's going to help us. Do I trust him enough that I'm going to believe him? That's where it boils down to. If I am frightened about every situation that's going to take place in this world, I'm not focusing my attention upon the Savior. I'm focusing my attention upon the problem, and the problem will only take me to destruction. I have to focus on the one who's going to see me through. We're all in dire trouble. We all need help. We all need to come to each other and begin to say, you know, my faith is faltering. I need some help. And let's meet together. Let's meet on Sabbath afternoons. Let's meet on Wednesday evenings. Or whatever night that you can meet together. It is a necessity. Come and learn together. And then take what you have learned in those homes and bring it back to your home and sit down with your family. And to begin to block out the things that are going to distract you from increasing your faith and from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Seek and focus your eyes upon Jesus. And he's going to see you through. And the angels are going to come. We're to shut the door to that outside world. And we are to pray and to act on those prayers by faith. Do you know what we're supposed to pray? Yeah. Go to Matthew chapter 6. 
Matthew 6. Starting with verse 6. Jesus is speaking, so he must know what he's talking about, don't you think? Matthew 6, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, there it is again, pray to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's another promise. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the brethren do, as the heathen do. Better be careful. <laughs> Get fired with that one. Some of them do too. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's not the flowery words that gets God's attention. It's what's in your heart. Verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, yours will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me tell you something. We've learned that as a child. But we never thought there would be a day when we would need to act on this prayer. This is a part of our little bitty faith that we're to act upon. In order to receive the power of the Spirit. For we are to ask. We are to believe in our hearts. We are to have poured out in our hearts that the soon coming kingdom of Jesus is going to be here. We need to act on earth just like we would do if we were up in heaven. Change of life. We need to ask for spiritual and physical needs. If there's any time we need it, we need it now. We not only need to be fed spiritually, but many of us need to be fed physically as well too because we're living in trying conditions. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for food and water and shelter during the world crisis. We need to seek forgiveness of our sins as we need to be willing to forgive others because, like Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. We will be tempted to stray away from God, to abandon Him out of fear, to be distracted from our spiritual needs by the world situations outside of our doors. So we need to start closing the doors within our house. We need to seek deliverance from the evil one. And that may even mean giving up some of the things that we're accustomed to doing within our life. How can we ask for all these things? Because he's promised to reward us. For he has promised he will set up his kingdom by his power to his glory and will be a part of that kingdom forever and ever. What happened to the widow? Go back to 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 7. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 7. And she came and told the man of God. She came back to Elisha. And he said, 
Go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons will live on the rest. Do you know what happened? By the miracle of God, she was able to take all those big vases of 30 gallons of good, nice, wholesome olive oil and take it out and sell it and pay off the debt so she has her voice and have enough left over to be able to live. Because God wants her to live forever and ever. You know what? God wants us to live. He wants our families to live. He wants us to be filled. He wants us to have the debt for the wages of sin is death. He wants that to be paid and it's been paid because of the cross of Jesus and we have life. What do we got to worry about? This time period is not scary. This time period should be the happiest moments of our lives because Jesus is coming soon. Amen. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen. The miracles that are going to take place. Are you weak in faith? You've been given a measure of faith that says that if you take that little itty-bitty measure of faith and you can tell the mountain, you can tell old Mount Baldy back over here, I want to move you to New Mexico. And it'll go. My wife and I call it Mount Atterbury. <laughs> you don't have to laugh at that, Chris. God is ready to give us more Holy Spirit power than we could ever dream. If a little bitty measure of faith can move an entire mountain, think what vessels of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit can do. Jesus says, greater things you guys are going to be able to do than I was able to do here on this earth. That blows my mind. But he's ready. And I can't wait to see what it is he's going to do. Or I tell you, when sorrow comes on us, comes crashing down on us like waves, he teaches us what we need to say within our lives. It is well. It is well with my soul. Hymn number 530. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Christian faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.